0: Well, hello, everyone. I am back again, this time with a new friend, Rebecca McLaughlin. Rebecca, how are you? Welcome from Chicago to you in Cambridge, Massachusetts.
1: Well, thank you for the welcome to from chilly Chicago to really quite cold Cambridge.
0: Yes, yes, yes. Hey, look, how, how cold is it over in Cambridge right now?
1: It has just turned into Cambridge kind of fall. Yeah. Um, which a, a friend who moved here from uh, Tennessee this summer said a couple of days ago that people are telling her, Oh, it feels like fall now. She was like, no, 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 this is winter. This is, this is the most wintry winter I've ever felt, <laughs> but she's, she's not even ready for when actual winter comes.
0: Rebecca a couple of weeks ago, I was in Nairobi. All right. And it was, what was it? 62 degrees. Oh, and gosh. they were all in their winter coats and said, Tommy, just this that freezing. This is natural. This is nice. <laughs>
1: It all just depends, is not it?
0: Yeah. Hey, now, how long have you lived in Cambridge, Rebecca?
1: We have been here for 16 years. 16 okay. a
0: bit. Yeah. Got it. And then originally, home was in the UK, right?
1: Yeah, I was raised mostly in London, um, spent seven years at the original Cambridge, then back to London for three years, got married to an American along the way, and he dragged me back to America. So yeah, a reluctant immigrant.
0: Okay, but so I if I was here. to ask you, how is life different from Cambridge, Massachusetts to London? What would you say? What are, what are some of the biggest differences?
1: Do You know, it's a good question. I partly was excited to live in Cambridge, Mass, because it's sort of con- it's as close to the UK as you can be while yes. living in America, both physically and culturally. And it's also a little bit of a mixture between Cambridge, UK, and London. So London is, you know, a proper big city with airports and international, you know, stuff going on, and then Cambridge is a university town and cambridge massachusetts because it's sort of snuggled in with boston is kind of a combination of those two things um my my husband when he was trying to persuade me that instead of him staying in england we should both move back to america said you know as an american in england i'm basically under under suspicion that was kind of how he felt he had to prove that he wasn't any any bad thing that england english people might think but he said as a as a brit in america people will love you for no reason and <laughs> And it's not entirely untrue. So I feel like I, I've been enjoying the the best of um, yeah. American receptions for the last 16 years because, yeah, for no reason, people, people to me because of my accent.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hey, today we're talking about your book, your newest book, No Greater Love. This is your 10th book that you've written right before we start this podcast. You were saying you love writing. Has that always been just a joy you had ever since you were a little girl?
1: You know, talking about Jesus has always been something I've wanted to do and and, done in various forms since I was since I was a little girl. But I only discovered this particular kind of writing, i.e. writing books that um, are connecting some of the issues and concerns that people have today with the scriptures and uh, a vibrant faith in Jesus. I only started doing that when I was pregnant with my, my son, who's my third child, and he just turned five this past summer. So I, I look at Luke and I think, oh, this, this is how long um, all this writing's been going on. But I, I just discovered that I really love this kind of writing yeah. and it keeps me out of trouble. You know, some people like going to the gym or, or doing pottery or you yeah. know playing picket ball. And I, turns out I love writing.
0: Yeah, yeah. And Rebecca, a lot of times when you start writing, <laughs> do you literally sit there and say, okay, I'm going to do writing from 12 to 4 and you just write? Or do you sit there and time flies, and you just write about a variety of different things? What does that process look like for you?
1: It really depends. I would never have thought that I was a morning person. Like if you'd asked my eighteen-year-old self, "Are you a morning person?" She would have said, "Go away and come back later when I'm awake." You know, like I was—I was never a morning person. But since having kids, I've become more of a morning person, and now I find that my best writing time is you know, first thing in the morning after I've got up, had my Bible time, got myself washed and dressed, I I then sit down to write. And I usually write in the mornings when my my kids are in school. Um, So I get like at best five hours, but frankly, it's impossible to write productively or to work productively on this kind of stuff for more than five hours at any way. So I sort of, I work part time, but I don't feel like it holds me back um, all that much. And yeah, I just sit down and some days, I'll write a ton and other days I'll sit there and I'll be like all of my feels about something and I won't get anything done or I'll, you know, need to do a bunch of reading before I can write anything um, useful. So it entirely depends. Like each day is different. Um, but yeah, I, I do, I do find that I get lost in my writing in a way that yeah. I don't really get lost in other things.
0: Yeah. I, I was telling you right before that one of the things I don't do well is the writing. But I love the part. I'm not a full-time pastor, but I love preaching at different churches. So mm-hmm. I've been studying the life of Elijah in First Kings 17 and 18. And so I'll do all the study in the morning. I love it. It's been something I've been studying for the last four or five months. But yes. then I also enjoy, like, I love doing these podcasts and hmm. it flies because I could just have a conversation with people and I enjoyed the engagement part, which is hearing about the person's journey, their struggles, what they're learning, all of those things. And that's the part that I enjoy.
1: Yeah. And I find, I don't know about you, but when I speak um, to to various groups, I more and more want to see that, even though it isn't necessarily like a, an actual conversation, because typically I'm not sort of having back and forth with the audience throughout, um, I want it to feel more like a conversation. I think almost nobody wants to be lectured and almost everybody wants to talk. So I'll stand up there and, and take a bit of a risk. I I don't speak with notes. I I do tend to prepare what I was going to say, but then I just stand up there and I kind of talk as if I, you know, like I'm talking to you now, I talk to an audience and and try to be present with them in the moment and to speak to them about what, um, what I'm passionate about and what they've come to hear about. And it's just a fun and terrifying exchange.
0: (laughs) Well, side note, we're going to talk about this. I love, because it seems like the talking with the notes was very influenced by your friend, Rachel.
1: Yeah. um, I, the way Rachel described it is that I drop kicked her into public ministry. Um, For those less familiar with the American football scene than she is. um, I think when you drop kick a ball, it's, you know, you hold it in your hands, you drop it down and then you punt it and it kind of goes, goes a long way. I think that's the general idea. You can tell how well versed I am in sports. But from that, um, because when I, when I first met her, it was obvious to me that she not only had an incredible testimony of how she'd come to Christ when she was an undergrad at Yale, um, having previously identified as atheist and had a girlfriend and a, a series of girlfriends, actually, but that she had some really important things to say um, and a, a brilliant mind and, and kind of way of communicating. So, so I was very excited to sort of get her writing, made her write up a testimony, um, got her to write a book. But she at that point was terrified, like absolutely hated public speaking, would resist and avoid it at all costs. And I had this sneaking suspicion that if she got over that, she would be really good at it.
0: Correct, correct, correct. correct. And then
1: the first time that I heard her speak, it was actually on a recording. She she was doing an event you know, for a thousand students talking about faith and sexuality and her sharing her story and, and teaching from that. And she was brilliant and she did it completely without notes. And I thought, oh, uh, you were able to connect with the audience in a way that I don't know. I don't think I am. Like I was, I was using notes. I was pretty, you know, free from them. Like I would, it wasn't like I was reading from my notes. I was sort of back and forth, but I had them there almost like a safety blanket. Yeah. And then um, through a couple of experiences, the Lord basically twice within a space of a few months, kind of ripped the notes out of my hands before I was about to speak without, you know, without my knowledge and consent, I was sort of catapulted onto a stage without my notes and forced to do it. But it was really, it was Rachel's, example that got me thinking oh maybe this is something that I need to to start doing too and it's been one of the ways in which she and I have been able to to sort of push each other actually um and to inspire and encourage and and, uh, direct each other when it comes to speaking and writing and and the kind of things that God's called us to do
0: I still remember Dr. Earl Lutcher was a wonderful mentor, and he always said that, Tommy, you've got to learn to find your voice. And it, mm-hmm. it does take time to find your voice, and it can evolve over time, doesn't it, Rebecca?
1: Yeah, and I don't know about you, but there's a piece of me that, that doesn't want to risk failure. You yeah. know, I, 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 and I always worry that when I stand up on a stage without the safety net of my notes – that, Oh, this is going to be the time when I just fall flat on my face. I stand up there and I've got nothing to say, and, you know, I, or say it completely the wrong thing, or whatever. Like, just it's it's risky, and I don't like that because I'm, you know, proud and I don't want to fail. But I think it's actually that very risk that enables an audience to engage more because they they're also thinking, oh, maybe she's going to forget what she was going to say, so uh, they they yeah. they pay attention in a way that they might not have done if I was standing there. Um, with a script that they, they think, oh yeah, she's, she's already decided what she's going to say. It makes it feel, and, and actually be more, more real. But it's, yeah, it's, it's not without cost, to be honest. I, I still I still get nervous every time.
0: Yeah, especially when you're right before you get on stage, there's that butterfly right when you, and it dissipates or it disappears as soon as you start speaking.
1: Yeah, I mean, what I find often, which I hate, is, is surely before I get on stage, it's like, my mind is completely blank. Yes, like yes. All, I've got nothing to say about anything, uh, especially not the thing I was meant to be talking about. And I just had to learn to kind of set that aside and trust that the Lord will actually give yeah. me what I need. Not that I'm not prepared. I mean, yeah, I'm not saying this is an excuse for like never preparing. Um, But, but I think what I'm trying to do more of is what Rachel calls sort of deep preparation, yeah. as in, You know, read more, think more, um, bat ideas around, um, study the scriptures, uh, develop things that that are worth communicating. And then when the time comes to communicate, you'll have stuff to say with the Lord's help.
0: All right. Let let me ask you one more question. Then we'll start Mm -hmm. your book about public speaking. But once in a while when you're speaking, it does seem like you'll get lost in the weeds or you're not connecting with the passage, everything like that, right? How do you get out of that funk then?
1: Yeah, uh, one of one of the other things that I learned partly from Rachel was that what feels to me like a million years of standing there in silence actually to the audience can feel like a, a kind of pregnant pause so I've learned that if my mind does go completely blank and I think, Oh, what was, what comes next? What am I going to say? I just give myself a minute. I stand there. Um, I, I let the silence be for a moment. And then if the next thing doesn't come, I tend to repeat the the bullet point that I'm in. I, I usually, not always, but usually my talks will have a, you know, four pretty um, tightly worded points that I, I think to myself, if, I, if I'm going to remember these points, they need to be mem- memorable so that everybody else is going to remember them too. And so if I'm halfway through a point and I think, oh, what comes after um, we must reclaim the university? What comes next in this in this section? I just like restate the point And then that's a us- useful repetition actually for the audience. And often the next thing comes in, if it doesn't, I just move on.
0: Yeah. 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 Very, very good. Hey, today uh, I want to talk to you a little bit about your book and I made a lot of notes, and there's a couple of different things that I've highlighted. I was wondering if we could just dive in, and I can ask mm. you some questions about that. Yeah. Right at the beginning, it says, This book explores the biblical terrain in which all Christian friendships set up camp. But rather than assuming we're the center of the story, we must recognize that every member of our orchestra is also conductor, and the piece each one of us is trying to play is not our own it's one composed for us by god himself let me just begin the story why friendship what would made you in light of reading all this stuff about the orchestra and all that stuff why did you write a book about friendship
1: i have wanted to write a book about friendship for actually several years but i felt like i kind of needed to figure some things out myself before i was was really ready I think one of the struggles that um, Christians who are like me want to be um, following the Bible across the board, including in areas where the Bible's teaching is is radically against what our society would say. One of the struggles we have is, is that, um, you know, the, the strict biblical teaching about sexual ethics that actually sex only belongs in marriage between one man and one woman is, is really offensive in our world today. And many people understandably ask, you know, how can you expect people who might only be attracted to folks of their same sex? How can you expect them to be lonely all their lives? You know, how can you say they can't get married, can't have a, have a family. And as I've sat with that question and as, as I've sat with the scriptures, I've been more and more convinced that's actually not what Christianity says at all because the call on Christians is absolutely not a call to loneliness. In fact, we are commanded again and again and again in the New Testament to love one another, not um, not only and not even actually primarily in, in the context of marriage. I mean, there's, uh, there are absolutely stunning, beautiful texts on marriage, not least Ephesians 5, when Paul tells us that Christian marriage is like a little scale model of Jesus's love for his people. But time and again, as you read through the epistles and as you read through the Gospels as well, especially John's Gospel, you'll find that we Christians are called to love each other. Mm-hmm. um not not only in in sort of relationships with people of our same sex but actually i think primarily in relationships with people of our same sex and we have somehow lost this vision now the the primary um metaphor that the new testament gives us for this kind of love is actually family so it, it's that we're brothers and sisters together and that we should function as you know the, the local church should mm-hmm. function as a family mm-hmm. um, and actually for christians that is our primary family unit not in fact, you know, me and my husband and our three kids are our, our, our sort of nuclear family is, is part of the church family, but yeah. it's not uh, it doesn't actually come before the church family, it's, it's woven into it. And our relationships of friendship, um, brother and sister love in, in more common biblical terms, are absolutely vital to our discipleship and to our witness. Yeah. You know, the night that Jesus was betrayed, he said, this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one this that he laid down his life for his friends. And I think we've lost sight of that. And we've reduced everything down to uh, sexual and romantic love. And we've said, you know, the only real intimacy that there is, it is husband and wife love or, or also maybe parent child love. And we have absolutely lost so much of the vision that the New Testament gives us, which then if we if we bring that in back into play it makes sense of the the christian vision for singleness it makes sense mm-hmm. of the the christian um constraints around sex because actually sex isn't the only expression of of true intimacy for christians um sexual romantic bond in, in marriage is is one species of love but it's not it's not the only show in town and we need to reclaim that so that's partly why I wrote the book
0: and this whole idea is you talk about this hallmark of discipleship and you built it on John 13, 34 to 35. A new commandment I give you that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Mm-hmm. And I love these words. The newness of his words is anchored in what Jesus was about to do. On mm. that dark night, he called his followers to plunge themselves deeper into love than they have ever gone because their mm. love for one another was to be just like his love for them. This is the hallmark of discipleship. Mm. Talk to me a little bit more, expand a little bit more on that.
1: Yeah, so, so those of us who've spent time in the New Testament will know, as I mentioned a minute ago, that the Christian marriage is meant to picture Jesus's sacrificial love for us. You know, Paul says in Ephesians five, "Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her." It's it's actually a different vision of marriage than many churches have have taught, where it's kind of been, you know, wives submit to your husbands, husbands rule over your wives. That's actually not what the what the text says. It says, "Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her." So, so we have at least to some degree this understanding that oh that the point of christian marriage is to picture jesus's love for his people his bride which is all christians kind of together but actually if we listen to jesus's words we'll find that our the love between brothers and sisters in the church is also meant to mimic his self-sacrificing love for us you know this is my commandment that you love one another as i have loved you greater love is nonetheless that you lay down his life for his friends um and john says it again in, in his first letter that this is how we know what love is that jesus christ laid down his life for us and we ought also to lay down our lives for the brothers um and by extension for the sisters you know he's talking um adelphoy there sort of a a word for brothers but it is used inclusively brothers and sisters too and so actually the way that christians love one another in the local church is something that is meant to picture jesus's sacrifice sacrificial yeah. love for us and meant to picture that for the world yeah. it's how people will know that we're his followers mm-hmm. if we have a love for one another that's distinctive and real and, and self-sacrificing and not just sort of uh, selfish and hoarding
0: yeah yeah yeah. and another thing that stuck out stood out and you had just mentioned it jesus was teaching when his mother and brother showed up and instead of saying family first I'm out of here. Jesus says, who is my mother and who are my brothers? Okay, I love this particular phrase you wrote. When we put love of Jesus first, we'll find we love our biological families more. Our love for them will be profoundly shaped by our love for him. And when we live as if the local church is our true family, our biological families will benefit i love that thought i really love that but at the same time sometimes people have a hard time with not prioritizing your family first don't they rebecca yeah i I think
1: i'm not about to write a parenting book because i'm no you know expert and i'm only sort of speaking from my limited experience of having my eldest child is thirteen, i have 13 11 and 5. but one of the things that i've come to believe from the scriptures and one of the things that i've come to see so far in my experience is that actually it is not the case that my husband Brian and I are solely charged with raising our children. We have a really important role to play in raising our children, but actually the the other believers in our church also have a really important role to play, and I see this in very tangible ways. For example, my 13-year-old, um, who um is, is very similar to my friend Rachel, in ways that I'm not, like, they're, they're actually, they're kind of like, two peas in a pod in a way that uh, Rachel and I are quite different and Miranda and Rachel are quite similar and so Rachel has been able to challenge Miranda in certain ways Um, you know hey have you thought about reading the Bible in 90 days you know this to an 11 year old at the time and I'm thinking I wouldn't it wouldn't dream of telling my 11 year old to try reading the Bible in 90 days like I, I wouldn't say that to an adult mm-hmm. friend let alone you know yeah. and, and actually Miranda was completely up to the challenge and you know then starts learning New Testament Greek because she's been challenged by you know, an adult friend, not by me, um, but, but by my friend. And so seeing in, in multiple ways, I could give so many more examples, how my children benefit from, and in turn, bless um, others in our church, both single and married, both with children or without children. Um, that rather than seeing the local church as a kind of add on to family as a, a and even christian friends as a, well i've got to make time for their my friends i've got to deprioritize my family in order to make time for for the church actually i think it's a win-win scenario yeah when we can in appropriate and healthy ways kind of bring people in and enable our children and in uh, our, our marriages to to actually benefit from being embedded in a local church um and one of the one of the Sort of small, but I think um, meaningful ways in which my husband and I try to do this is actually on Sunday mornings, we don't sit together. Yeah. We sort of deliberately don't sit with each other, which sounds like absolute heresy, you know, to most kind of uh, Western modern Christian norms. Oh, Uh,
0: you even wrote an article about why I don't sit with my husband at church too.
1: I did, and it was wildly controversial. I thought it would be the most, like, un uncontroversial thing I've ever written because I read about so many controversial things. I thought, oh, you know, this will be easy. Oh, my goodness, no. Like, so much backlash. (laughs) Um, Because people thought I was, you know, undermining Christian marriage and undermining the family and and inflicting my company on people who wouldn't want it and whatnot. But actually, if what the New Testament says about family, which is, as I mentioned, that our primary family is our church family, not um, our biological family then what if we acted like that was true on a Sunday morning? Um, what if we, instead of thinking, well, this is some, you know, extra special time I can spend with my spouse, much as special time with your spouse is great. Like there's plenty of time outside of church to do that. What if instead we thought, oh, this is a this is an opportunity for me to connect with someone who's come new to our church for the first time and walked in and sat down by themselves or a single friend who's come in and maybe sort of looks around and sees all the married couples and, and thinks, well, I don't really know where to sit or, you know, a friend at a different stage of life who we could connect with, um, you know, how, how can we make it look on a Sunday morning like we are, in fact, a bunch of brothers and sisters together and not a collection of nuclear families with some single people sort of sprinkled around, often, often actually feeling rather isolated. Um, I think everybody benefits when we yeah. live... way that the scriptures i think are calling us to live
0: oh i love this whole idea where you're you guys are finding different people to meet every single sunday because too often within the church you are with your family and all that stuff and so when a newcomer comes it's so easy just to sit there and then leave without engaging with anyone so i love how you guys are proactive in doing that
1: yeah like i said it's a huge blessing to us as well um and it's something i mean i'm not saying this is you know the scriptures say you must not sit with your spouse in church like i, I wouldn't want to press that too far and actually there are times like if if for whatever reason brian and i are kind of crosswise on a sunday morning it's probably good for us to sit together just to like remind ourselves that we're we're on the same team as it were um but i think finding even finding ways even if they feel disruptive of typical christian norms to live into the New Testament vision of church as family is something that blesses all of us and that gives us an opportunity. I mean, so many people wander into our churches who are actually not yet Christians. Yeah. And how they are received could make all the difference between them never coming back again
0: Yeah.
1: or them coming and hearing the gospel and repenting and believing.
0: Yeah. And you wrote this wonderful story in the book of the young girl that you had met. And she had just come to church. You couldn't talk with her. But later on, someone sat with her. But later on, you got a chance to talk with her and heard about her journey. And now she's part of your church family. And she is engaging, whether it's reading with your books or everything like that. And a wonderful story.
1: Yeah, like I say, it's just a joy to um, to get to know people and to see what God is doing in people's lives, to to hear their stories and to, in meaningful ways, invite people to not only receive from the church family, but actually to to give as well, to be part of it, that we're all, even the newest Christian who may feel like he or she um, is only in a position to receive, actually has a lot to give. And we we all thrive as Christians when we're both giving and receiving love, when we're both serving and being served, when we're sort of throwing ourselves in and having others um, come alongside us in different ways.
0: Got it, got it, got it. Rebecca, who taught you this? Growing up a lot of times, who instilled that? Was that something you were influenced by your parents, by other communities? Who instilled those values in you? Do
1: you know? I think my my parents, um I come from a sort of mixed Christian family, um, with a, a strong sort of Catholic heritage on my mom's side and a kind of mixed Church of England heritage on my on my dad's side. Um, and growing up we went to a church which honestly I don't today I wouldn't necessarily recommend to somebody who was sort of looking for a, for a great church to to go to. Um, But what I, what I did get to experience in addition to the words being read and kind of encountering the Bible um, that way, was a a regular um, experience of community with people who were very different from me. You know, this was a church that cut across a lot of demographic lines and socioeconomic Mm -hmm. lines and educational lines and age lines and, you know, um, various kind of life stages and, and, and situations. And I was meeting people at church and kind of living alongside people at church who I just wasn't meeting in the kind of preppy private school I went to, or in, you know, different um, you know parts of my extended family. Like this was, I think I I got the benefit of um, a real messy, um, unglamorous uh, experience of of Christian community, where the entry bar was showing up. Um, and where my family, you know, we showed up, we showed up week after week, um, not just on Sundays, but to, to other services and sort of Saturday gatherings as, as well. And got to, yeah, have fellowship with people who we probably would not yeah. have met in any other context.
0: Yeah. 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 Very, very good. Talk to me about the friendship of CS Lewis and Tolkien and how that influences your writing.
1: So I'm a huge Tolkien fan. Uh, I grew up, uh, my dad read me the Lord of the Rings as a kid and, just absolutely loved it. I still do (laughs) to this day, you know, I'm very kind of shaped, um, by that. And sometimes when people ask me, you know, why are you a Christian? Like what, tell me the reason you find Jesus compelling. There are so many different answers I could give to that. But one of them is that as a follower of Jesus, I believe in a world that is even more magical and extraordinary than the world that Tolkien created. Um, but what I only discovered actually relatively recently, I like I knew that C.S. Lewis, he wrote the Narnia Chronicles, and um, and Tolkien, he wrote the Lord of the Rings. I knew there were friends and colleagues um, <clears throat> at Oxford. I have to sort of slightly spit when I say Oxford uh, as a as a Cambridge girl. So you know, I'll, I'll, I'll croak that word out. But it was at Oxford. Um, I, I only re- discovered relatively recently that talking according to according to Tolkien, he would not have written the lord of the rings and got it published if it hadn't been for c.s lewis's encouragement that actually he needed a friend to say hey you could write this and you should write this and i've just you know you've read some out to me and i'm actually thinking it's really quite compelling and so maybe you need to get this published like somebody yeah.
0: um,
1: a little bit like i you know forced my friend rachel into writing books and, and, and giving talks that uh, to some extent, C.S. Lewis did that with Tolkien. Now, I have no delusions of grandeur that, you know, Rachel and I are nothing like um, those, those giants of, of the faith, as it were. Um, but in our small way, it's been really important to both of us to be challenged by each other. Um, and I have other friends in, in that process as well. And so I I am increasingly convinced that actually friendship is is really important to all of our discipleship and to all of our ability to move forward with the work that God's given us in the world, whatever that work is. And it actually doesn't matter what that specific kind of work is. Um, You know, you and I will be called to different things. Everybody listening to this podcast will have their own unique sort of work that's been put before them by the Lord. And it might feel very unglamorous or it might, um, or it might feel glamorous. It doesn't, doesn't really matter. Actually, according to Jesus, the most unglamorous work is, is actually the most precious in his eyes but we will need people in our lives who will encourage us, who will rebuke us when we need it, who will listen to us, who will um, tell us to keep going when we feel like giving up. All of those things we need in friendship.
0: You talk about friendship a lot of times, male, male, women, women, all of those things. And uh, there's a whole section on same-sex attraction that you also talked about, but you also talk about the Billy Graham rule. Sometimes in the midst of it, We followed the Dr. Graham rule to the point where we alienate other women or we don't have friendship with other women. I sit here and talk with you, male, female, uh, one of my coworkers or team members, Donna, who is one of my closest friends is sitting right across from me. You talk about this whole thing called gospel partners, Mm -hmm. especially when it comes to friendship between male and female or different other things. Talk to me about what it means to have healthy friendships or gospel partners.
1: Yeah, so if you listen to what Paul says, um, for example, the advice that he gives, or the instructions he gives to his mentee Timothy, he doesn't say avoid women at all costs. Mm-hmm. What he says is, treat younger women as sisters, yeah. and yeah. older women as mothers. So how do you how do you treat your sister? I don't know if you if you have a an actual like a biological sister yeah, or not. I do. Uh-huh. Um, but if you think about how you would treat a sister. You care about your sister. You you are affectionate to your sister. You um, you feel protective of your sister. You are. It, it is not a sexual re- relationship. Like it is not. It, that's that's absolutely not where it's uh, where it's going. And this is kind of the the picture that we're given for how we as believers in the church should relate to one another. You know, male male and female. Um, now we're also told to flee from sexual immorality. And, and that, that will look, um, that will sort of have applications in different places for all of us. So f- for instance, um, I'm someone who, I, I'm really like, I, I only ever find myself sort of attracted outside of my marriage to other women, um, you know, at times. Um, so, so I'm actually, far, like from my perspective, I could hang out with a male friend all day long and it wouldn't, you know, it, it's not actually uh, risking sexual immorality on my side. I sometimes have to be careful to not just assume that that's true of any male friend, because we need to we need to lovingly be attentive to one another and to you know not putting each other in um, in situations that that might um, cause us even even sort of in our minds um, towards sexual immorality. Because Jesus speaks to you very seriously about sexual immorality, not just indeed but even in, in thought. So we need to we need to be careful and loving in terms of how we relate to one another. And there are some people for whom actually having a a closer relationship with somebody of the opposite sex who they could even, you know, potentially find attractive is just better avoided. Like there are some people who have like major struggles with, with lustful thoughts and whatever. Like, and I, I, so, I'm not saying that the Billy Graham rule of kind of never being alone with somebody other than your wife um, is uh, a woman other than your wife is a wrong thing for men to, to live by, I actually think there are probably many men for whom that's really helpful. Yeah. Um, But I don't think that's actually the case for for every man or for for every woman. I think instead we need to think, um, what does love look like? And how can we be meaningfully in gospel partnership with people without causing anybody to stumble?
0: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Let me uh, have you get a drink of your juice over here. We're talking Mm -hmm. with Rebecca McLaughlin, author of No Greater Love, A Biblical uh, Vision for Friendship. Okay, a couple of uh, side notes before we finish up. Rebecca, a lot of times you mentioned when you write articles and everything like that, you get a lot of feedback. Some good, some bad, and you're probably going to get on social media. And not. How do you deal with criticism?
1: Do you know, <clears throat> the way the Lord has made me means that I care an awful lot what a very few people think of me. <laughs> um, and that means that if my closest relationships are in, in a good space, I'm actually not... I'm really just not troubled by sort of critiques from random people <laughs> that I don't really, you know, I, I don't really know. like. It doesn't it doesn't hurt my feelings. Um, conversely, if my closest relationships are sort of off kilter for whatever reason, I'm I'm wrecked. So it's not uh, <laughs> there. There are pluses and minuses to to um, how each of us uh, um, is wired, I think. But what I what I try to do is if I if I receive a critique. There are a few things i want to do one thing is to say okay um is is this actually a valid critique uh, and somebody uh a month or so ago sent me an email and said you know i really like your work and i have appreciated you know many of the things you said but like there's a particular thing that you've sometimes said in like podcasts and talks that i think is actually really unhelpful um and she pointed out why and, and that precise thing was something that I'd actually been a little bit troubled in my conscience about in the weeks preceding of thinking, oh, you know, when I make that joke, is it actually, like, it, it could be unhelpful to people. So, so when I received that feedback, I thought, you know, she's right. Uh, so I emailed her back. I said, thank you so much for bringing that to my attention. I actually agree. I think I shouldn't say that anymore. And I don't plan to. So there are times when, when critique is like valid and helpful um, and something that I need to take note of, actually, even if it's not delivered in, with graciousness as, as it was in, yeah. in this scenario, there are other times when we, we might think, do you know what? I don't think that critique is actually valuable um, and true. And I don't think it's being delivered lovingly. And, and I, I would either ignore that or it might be that, that this is an opportunity to love my enemies. Yeah. And I think that's particularly if it's a critique from somebody who is not a Christian and they are, you know, coming at me sort of online for one reason or another, I want to find any way I can to respond with humility and love um, rather than to just sort of fight back because that's something that we're called to do as Christians. Um, yeah. You know, Jesus saying, I I said, you love your enemies yeah. um, and, and Peter saying in first letter that we should always be really ready to give a reason for the hope that we have but we should do so with gentleness and respect and there are sometimes opportunities for us to show gentleness and respect when we haven't been given much gentleness or respect um, but but we can be distinctive in how we respond.
0: Very good. Rebecca, what's the next book you're working on right now?
1: I'm working on a very short book uh, addressing a very big question which is, does the Bible affirm same-sex relationships? Yeah. And I'm looking at what seem to me to be the 10 most popular arguments that people make in favor of same-sex marriage for Christians. And I'm explaining why each of them doesn't actually hold water when you look more closely. But I, I'm doing so um, in a way that I, I'm, I'm framing each question with a story of somebody I know for whom this is a very real mm-hmm. issue, because I think sometimes when Christians have written books about this this topic, um, you know, they, they may have been really strong on like this is what the Bible says, this is the ancient context, this is you know what the Greek says here, this is like some of the important sort of technical detail and, and theological rigor is there. But uh, folks on the other side who may actually have an awful lot less in terms of theological rigor are telling very compelling stories and i wanted to do a book that sort of brings both those things together and it is sufficiently short that somebody who doesn't really read books might
0: read it got it you're good very good rebecca thank you thank you very much another thing that i noticed a lot of times that caught my attention the cv of failure i love that illustration mm-hmm. CV of failure
1: yeah we're all a bunch of failures at the end of the day and that's kind of you know that's the starting point for christians and it's not It's not not the end of the starting, if that makes sense. Um, I continue to fail uh, and the beauty of the gospel is that despite your and my failure, whether it's moral or professional or relational or whatever it is, that the one person who knows everything about us, including our most shameful failures, loves us literally to death and back.
0: (laughs) I want to end with one poem that you included from Dietrich Bonhoeffer, which says this, not from the heavy heavy soil of earth, but from the heart's free choosing and from the spirit's free longing, needing no oath or legal sanction is the friend given to the friend, like a clear well, uh, fresh wellspring, where the spirit cleanses itself from the day's dust, where it cools itself after blazing heat and steals itself in the hour of fatigue, like a fortress where the spirit, uh, spirit returns After confusion and dangers, finding refuge, comfort, and strength, such is a friend to the friend. Rebecca McLaughlin, author of her very first book, Confronting Christianity, 12 Hard Questions in the World's (laughs) Largest Religion. Her other books, Exploring the Earliest Gospel, The Secular Creed, 10 Questions Every Teen Should Ask, 4 Questions Every One Should Ask. All of these, and now her newest book, No Greater Love Rebecca, where can people find you if they want to follow you, have more questions, all of that? I,
1: Because my husband and my pastor both told me that I needed to be on Twitter if I'd run the book, I'm on Twitter. <laughs> um, and I'm also on Instagram because when I wrote a book for teens, people told me nobody under 30 is on Twitter, so you, you need to be on Instagram. Um, and then I have a website called uh, RebeccaMcGlotton.org, which I don't update all that frequently, but uh, where you can subscribe um, to emails, which will appear irregularly every few months, letting you know about a new book or something like that.
0: Instagram is good. Hey, Twitter, I I think a lot of times it's going downhill here, Rebecca.
1: Well, that's a whole other
0: conversation. (laughs) (laughs) Rebecca, thank you so much for making some time.
1: Thanks, brother. It's been a joy.
0: We'll talk soon.